You're listening to the Meet the Farmers podcast with me, your host, Ben Eagle. Please remember to subscribe to the show wherever you are listening. Hello, everyone. I'm Ben Eagle, and welcome to another Meat Farmers mini-series focused on trees on farms being made in association with Forestry Commission. Now, in this series, we're asking three questions focused on the why, what, and how of farm woodland management. In this first episode, we'll be asking why we need to improve our management of farm woodlands in the UK in the first place. Then in episode two, we'll have a question time format asking what farmers need to know about managing trees. And in the third and final episode, we'll be asking how farmers can manage their farm woodlands better. And we'll be using the practical example of a woodland management plan in that one. So I hope you get a lot out of this. Um, please do engage with us on social media um, at MTF underscore podcast. Um, but uh, yes, I'm thrilled to be joined once again by my Forestry Commission co-host, John Burgess. He's made Hello. it back. Um, John is a woodland resilience officer based in the southwest. John, it's great to have you back again. How are you doing? I'm very well, Ben. Great to be back. Thanks for thanks for having me back. Uh, do you want to um uh, do you want to briefly introduce yourself again to the listeners once again? I, and I should just say, yeah, listeners, if you haven't listened um, to our first series uh, that came out roughly a year ago, so just scroll back through the episodes um, to find that. Yeah, thanks, Ben. Uh, great to be back. Um, I'm the resilient officer. I'm based uh, down here in the southwest of England. I help people ensure their woods are fit for the future. That means. Uh, woods are prepared for climate change and the things that we are anticipating that will be increasing problems, droughts, storms, as well as the sort of the unknowns, the pests and the diseases, the new things that are coming, um, helping them design new woodlands fit for purpose, but also adapting existing woodlands. So as you can imagine, it's a pretty busy job. And, and in terms of this series, so last year we went to the Chatsworth Estate, um, we were down in Devon for a bit, uh, in Brewer as well. This time, we're sort of looking more generically, I suppose. Um, but uh, what, what are you most looking forward to um, from this new miniseries? Well, yet again, really looking forward to hearing some of the experienced voices from the, the range of guests that we've got lined up. But also this time we're doing a Q&A panel. So kind of getting very real and nitty gritty because sometimes the, the stuff I talk about can be can be quite theoretical. So, yeah, <laughs> all good. And uh, in terms of today's episode, we're focusing on the why. What does that actually entail? What, what are we going to be talking about? Yeah, the why is why we should manage our woodlands or the listeners should manage their woodlands. People sometimes think the woods all sort of look after themselves, but we know that a sensitively managed woodland delivers so much more for society. That is a mixture of public goods, such as clean air, water and a regulated flow in, in areas that flood. The woodland itself is, is healthier. It's more structurally and species diverse, which is great for helping it respond to climate change. But there's also the private benefits that go to the, the woodland owner themselves, the saleable timber. And that's what we'll be talking about with our first guest. Just to put this into context, as a nation, we import 80% of our timber needs. We only grow 20% of the timber we need. 
Yeah, I think that's a really important point, isn't it? I'm I'm not directly involved in forestry, but that stat shocked me actually and made me think for sure. Um, talking of our first guest, uh, do you want to introduce him? Who have we got? Yeah, our, our guest for this first episode, really excited to have Dougal Driver. Dougal is the CEO of Grown in Britain, uh, an initiative that promotes timber products grown in the UK. Welcome to the podcast, Dougal. Uh, thank you very much. It's fantastic to be here. So as we'll explore today, there are many reasons why we might want to increase our management of woodlands in the UK, particularly farm woodlands. What for you, Dougal, is the most important reason? It's a cliche, perhaps, in some other retail sectors, but every little helps. Um, you mentioned an import figure of around 80%. And we'll never be self-sufficient because we we do use a lot of products and we've got limited land area, but about 40% of our woodlands are undermanaged. Growing in Britain is about 10 years old, as you can see from the logo behind us. That's the 10th anniversary this year. And 10 years ago, it was about 60 plus percent was considered unmanaged by the Forestry Commission, and now it's about 40%. Whilst we might not be able to replace that 80% import, to have half our current woodlands actually underperforming and not being managed. So it's not a, it's quite a big answer in the sense that every little helps because every, every little woodland can help. We import some very simple wood products from around the world, like even split logs in bags that you put on an open fire. And there's nothing simpler you can get out of a very small woodland. You know, two and a half trees could give you a ton of firewood to last you know, the winter. So every little really does help. And of course, it scales up from there. You mentioned a couple of stats there, Dougal, but John, do you have any statistics on the state of farm woodlands in the UK in terms of management practice or productivity? I mean, what state are our farm woodlands in generally? We are talking on general terms here. Yeah, absolutely. It's with the statistics that we do for, for UK forestry, we don't separate out who is owning the farm, who is owning the wood, whether it's a farm woodland or not. But as Dougal said, most of our woodlands are unmanaged. And we know that smaller woodlands are less likely to be managed than the bigger ones. And that's a function of sort of the, the economics of scale of, of, of running a management, running a timber harvesting operation. Farm woodlands are those smaller woodlands, more likely to be a smaller block of woodland or collection of small woodlands. So Therefore, we can make a, a fairly reasonable assumption that farm woodlands are those that we most need to target to encourage them, to help support them into management. And just that difference between a managed and an unmanaged woodland. Unmanaged woodlands tend to have quite a closed canopy that reduces the light to the ground floor, that reduces the amount of ground flora, the understory, and that's where the wildlife is. So if you want a biodiverse woodland, uh, you really need to sort of break up that canopy and get some structural diversity in there. Now, I couldn't agree more if I may come in there, Ben, because um, I don't know whether this is true, and I'm, I'm I'm very easy to get hold of farmers out there and others who might be listening to this, but I suspect and I see and I talk to a lot of farmers who are absolutely brilliant at managing the land for the crops or the stock or the arable, and they look at the piece of woodland and they're a little bit like, oh, I better not touch that. I, I'm not sure that the sound of a chainsaw is as welcome as the, the sight of a combine harvester, which kids might draw pictures of for their school teachers on, on the return to term. But actually, the wildlife that uh, John just talked about that's encouraged when you thin that woodland and you, you create a renewable product, you, you, you harvest a renewable product that and it's brilliant for biodiversity in nature. It's great for carbon because you're using wood, not other materials potentially. 
maybe on the farm. We'll come on to how you might use some of this material on farm as well. So I would say that I'd encourage um, everybody to obviously um, check out the felling license rules with the Forestry Commission, John and his colleagues. You know, there are allowances up to five cubic metres per quarter within the Forestry Act for you to to, to, to to fell trees in a woodland without necessary licence, but do check the rules. But they're not onerous and the Commission are there to help and uh, you can get in touch with Grown in Britain as well. And we really, really encourage that management. So, yeah, I, I, I get a feeling that I can see, you know, here in John's voice that it's good for wildlife, it's good for all these things, encouraging somebody to do something that maybe they're a bit reluctant to do, maybe a little bit wary of, don't be. Think of it as managing any other crop on your farm if you want, and you get all of the benefits that go with it. I mean, just reflecting on those unmanaged woodlands, but also that idea of wariness, how much do you think that this is just an issue, actually, of farmers actually just not, and this is a question to both of you, I suppose, of farmers just not really having the time or, or the knowledge, the resource. So it's much easier to just say, well, I'm going to focus on this bit of land on it that I understand. And we'll just leave that to do its own thing. Yeah, and that's why the Forestry Commission have a support projects, such as one that Grown in Britain is involved with, actually, where we support un- what's called unengaged woodland owners. You know, we do know it's a problem. You're absolutely right. It's a great question. And I don't think John or I would pretend otherwise that um, landowners with woodlands are sometimes very hard to reach. If woodland owning is not a key part of their portfolio, you know, such as, say, larger estates, which might have professional advice. Yeah, uh, farmers and and other landowners, absentee land, land, landowners that own farm type woodlands, but aren't necessarily farmers themselves, can feel quite remote from the likes of myself or John and other organisations in order, in terms of getting advice. But um, they needn't be if they've listened to this, because there's there's two ways they can get a hold of us now. And like I say, there are actually projects and, and support mechanisms out there to get people through that sort of first gateway into knowing what is the right thing to do or not. I just, yeah, just pick up on those thoughts that there's a lot in the press nowadays about sort of, you know, good woodland management and that press for biodiversity. And people think that cutting down a tree is is a bad thing, cutting down a live tree for centuries, decades. One of the, the things that, that we've done is is manage woodlands and some of our best woodlands are woodlands that have had a continuity of management. And that is just very sensitive just going in and selecting the odd tree because that's the one you're going to build a gate post out of or that's the one with a bit of firewood or well that one's a bit bent and twisted and gnarly so i'll remove that one and leave the nice straight trees to to grow on so it's just not to be afraid not to think that you're doing something wrong by cutting down a tree and it kind of building up that mentality that that sensitive woodland management is a good thing let's bring this towards resilience I mean, John, this is a key part of your role within the FC, within the Forest Commission. How would improving the management of farm woodlands improve their resilience for the future, but also the resilience of the countryside generally, the rural economy um, and the state of the environment? Resilience, your start of the term. Yeah, thanks. Man. I said earlier, sometimes my job can get quite theoretical and I think I'm going to sort of drift into a, into a bit of theory there. Um a managed woodland is more structurally diverse. It has ages of trees up through the canopy. Then that it helps it respond better to whatever may occur, such as a, a storm that knocks over the biggest, oldest trees that have more sail, leaving the younger trees behind to quickly fill those gaps. But also, if we manage the woodland, it prevents one or two species dominating, and therefore we have a more species diverse woodland. So if we have an attack from a new pest or disease such as ash dieback, and it will only pick out one species, leaving behind a healthy functioning woodland. 
economically, a smaller woodland is able to respond to local needs. So you might have a small order of maybe quite specialist materials, such as a single tree for a, for a specific job that a, um, a sawmill needs. Big forests just aren't set up to respond to those. They just work on bulk orders of, of sort of one tree from a monoculture. So a, a small farm woodland might be able to deliver just a, a trailer load of firewood, let's say, or some niche products, hazel coppice or something. So there are these opportunities that arise from having a managed woodland and a woodland owner that knows the stock of their woodland is able to produce a more resilient woodland and a more resilient business. So those two things really do go hand in hand. And I think we sort of forget that sometimes. Yeah. Can I take that to another level? Can I can I take that? I'm going to pay a bit of a guilt trip on your listeners now because um, because we import all that timber. If you if you let's just ratchet this up a little bit. If you don't use something that's growing on your land and you just keep it there and you and it is possible to harvest it. It's not the other side of the two big boggy fields and hidden away down a steep slope or something like that. But it is accessible. That timber, that material will be imported from somewhere around the world because that's what we do. And it's a great material. We're going to increase our use of wood massively over the next decade. And if you take that material from somewhere else, that footprint, the timber miles on that is much more than, of course, it would be locally. You might say I would say this because of that shoulder grown in Britain over my shoulder here. (laughs) However, if you're in the country where that came from, whether that's uh, we import, for instance, oak from Romania. What about their sustainability and them using their own oak? So I think there's, I'm going to just ratchet it up a little bit. And if someone's not feeling persuaded, just have a little think, a little bit of a little think of the conscience here. I, I've never yet met a farmer who grows food, not to talk about food security. Think about it as timber security as well. They're, they're both assets that support the planet. Also, just to pick up on a, on a point Deagle's made there, one of the things we have in this country as a result of it came about because we were looking at the deforestation of the Amazon and we got very sort of finger waggy at some of those countries going, oh, you're deforesting. They turned around and said, well, what about your woodlands? And we looked at, at the figures in, in, in the UK and Western Europe and it's like, oh, yeah, we're, we're just as guilty of deforestation and poor woodland management. So we put into place the first iteration of the UK forest standard, which is uh, just the, the government's template for sustainable forest management, which is, is is a really good document. It's now on its fourth edition, but it's it's brilliant. And it shows that our woodlands, because they have to be compliant with the UK forest standard in order to get a felling licence, that our woodlands are well managed. But if we buy timber from abroad, we have less and less and less traceability, less security that that, that, woodland is, that wood is good. What about the role of all this and even small woodlands when it comes to uh, the climate crisis, John? Again, does it come down to that that sort of side of responsibility that we've been erring on? We've all heard about reducing our carbon emissions and, and we know that woodland does that in abundance. But it does it in two ways. And it's really important to sort of to, to pick that apart. One is the locking up of carbon as the trees grow. Fantastic. Everyone's familiar with that. But the biggest single gain is when we use that timber and substitute it for the really carbon intensive materials, concrete, steel, plastics. If we build something out of wood, that means those emissions are removed and then locked up for generations and we've made space for the next tree to grow, which will keep actively locking up carbon and those managed woodlands lock up carbon 
long into the future, whereas an unmanaged woodland will hit peak carbon after a few decades. And if I can just sort of stray into an anecdote, um, my kitchen table, I made it myself. I made it from reclaimed timber. So that wood is a second life. Uh, Yeah, it's not good. It's a bit wobbly and a bit wonky. But I actually asked where the timber came from that I got, and that was originally in a building. So that piece of wood is now on its third life. Yeah, uh, you know, just sort of having a think, it, it's probably sort of two hundred years ago that that tree was cut down. I don't think I would get that from a piece of plastic, and it's still a wonderful tactile material that just looks fantastic in the kitchen, despite my wonky carpentry. So, do what is the situation when it comes to our utilization of timber in the UK? What products come from our domestic timber supply? What are we good at making, and and what are we? What do we perhaps still need to import? Let's go big picture first. We tend to import added value products for kind of obvious reasons in a way, because if you're going to process something in another country, put it on a train, put it on a truck, take it to a port, put it on a ship, take it across the ocean, take it off again. You don't really want it to be a cheap bit of wood, even though I said earlier, firewood comes, that's crazy. But we tend not to make high engineered products here. They're, they're a bit political, but we've lost our manufacturing base. So it's, we do sawmilling very well, a little bit of secondary processing, but we don't have many, many finishing tertiary processing arrangements. So don't think that if you've got a small woodland or a large woodland or several large woodlands on your farm, you've suddenly got to supply the housing industry with all its needs We're moving forward. On the other hand, if you've got nice, good timber and those stems are close together, you will know this, you know, farmers, you know, if they're too close together, they need to be thinned out. There will be sawmills really interested in that good timber. Oak in particular is in short, short supply. But um, going down through the product range, as you say, um, we can now, and we Green Britain's had some projects where we, we've worked with uh, manufacturers to stick smaller bits together. We've worked, worked with Coppice Chestnut to make uh, what's called a homegrown house out of chestnut coppice in, in Kent, where there's a lot of chestnut coppice, where you can cut bits that maybe have knots or a twisted bent, you know, from what might be considered low grade. You stick them together, you can make amazing engineered structures, you know, glue lamb beams, for instance, that, you know, if you think about a barn on a farm, let me make that analogy. That's that steel portal that can be made out of timber when you stick little bits together. And so we can make anything out of our, our bits of timber, no, no matter the what you might call the quality. So I'm changing my tune from a few years ago where I would have talked about farm woodlands in a slightly different way. But we do have that ability now in this country and it's growing to make engineered products out, out of things. Let me go on to a specific, John, and that's chestnut, sweet chestnut, not horse chestnut, that grows pretty well across the country. Obviously, there are some hot spots, borders, you know, the, the marches and the southeast, but actually pretty well across England, chestnut grows well. And it can be ubiquitously used in products on, on farm or on land management. In it, Untreated, it's a, it's a really good fencing product. In, so in many cases, yeah, it's uh, uh, untreated. So you don't have all of those problems of the planet and chemicals and treatment and also afterlife. So there's products and there's also species. Oak, always sellable if quality. You've obviously got a lot of ash at the moment that's getting diseased, sadly, but use it. Don't let it go too far and look at things like chestnut and perhaps secondarily hazel, which has a more limited product range, but nonetheless could be useful. But definitely chestnut, sweet chestnut, sweet chestnut coppice. Even better for carbon because that stock stays in the ground. You have to go and get a tree from somewhere else and plant it, which has a bit of a carbon attachment to that. 
it just grows again from the stem. Just one thing to say, when we're looking at species that are suitable for climate change, sweet chestnut generally comes up. The climate we're expected to have in 30 or 40 years is what they're having in France now, mid-France. If you go down there, you are seeing large chestnut plantations for the nuts as much as for the timber, walnut orchards. And that's kind of, you know, they look fantastic. They look quite in keeping with our understanding of woodlands, but just using a slightly different species, but species that have fantastic timber. How could improving our farm management contribute to the situation of, of providing that timber, providing that, that the su- needs of the supply chain? Yeah, there's, so we've talked about existing woodlands that are already there quite a lot, haven't we, John? You know, what to do with what you've got. And I think we need to cover off a few more things with that. But actually looking at, I think we should look ahead as well at new, new, and talk about new woodlands. And if you've got a, a room for more, there's great support from the Forestry Commission to create new woodlands. It's, it's never been better to do that. The long-term potential is that we're going to want more timber in time. Now, foresters tend to think long-term, we have to. You don't necessarily you, you don't necessarily take the shade of the trees you plant, is the saying in our world. So you do need to think ahead. But if you've got long-term aspirations for you and your family and generations to come, also get those new woods in the ground. It's not just the incentive of what the commission will support you with, but there's the incentive of the future generations who will want these products. Now, in terms of how you might look at that, some very basics to me, um, there was a guy called Sir John Lawton who did some principles a few years ago, which I absolutely love, which is, in summary, bigger, better, joined up. If you've got a woodland already, make it bigger and try and make it better before, you know, make it bigger with new next to it and join those, join dispersed woodlands up if you can. I don't need to explain again to listeners about wildlife corridors, but because that's pretty obvious stuff. But rather than isolating a new woodland somewhere on the farm, you know, think about making the, the ones you've got already bigger, joining them up. And of course, at the same time, getting in and managing what you've got. I do get quite angsty about support for woodland, new woodlands when the existing woodlands next door aren't touched and haven't been touched. And also access. I mean, clearly, I mentioned slopes and wet ground. You know, there's not a... Uh, if you've got a small woodland, it's not a huge amount of money in it. You know, a, a sawmill will buy a lorry load of timber logs and, and, and you'll be familiar with what that looks like. And obviously, you've got to get that to roadside to get it onto an articulated lorry or to get it somewhere a crane can lift those logs onto a lorry. So if you are planning tracks and you're doing tracks for your farm, just think about where those woodlands might be maturing, where there might be mature timber and just maybe a little bit of a deviation and turning circles, stacking areas, things like that. Always, always good to think about and think about that over the long term for ready, ready for harvest. Although most small woods on farm can, can be handled, the products can be handled by what I would call normal farm machinery. You know, what might be you or your neighbours might have that could, could get, get small amounts out to, to roadside or to your own stores. Just in relation to the dance you gave, just as the cogs are wearing here, one of the things that the government actually is, is offering at the moment is uh, a farm productivity grant where you can buy small pieces of equipment, such as a, a timber crane to put on the back of just an ordinary tractor or a timber trailer, which which can kind of kickstart some of that, the management of the smaller woodlands. So there is help and support. You know, it might not be obvious where it is, but speak to the Forestry Commission, speak to Grand Britain, and, and we can point you, pinpoint you, signpost you to, to what your needs are. Just while Dougal was mentioning new woodlands there but i suppose we're also talking about um increasing diversity within existing woodlands just some thoughts um from you both perhaps starting with john 
on structure, genetics, um, thinking to the future. Again, this is with your resilience hat on. Um, what might the benefits be of of uh, in, improving that, increasing that diversity of structure and genetics, and, and how do you how do you sort of see that coming out in future? That's a relatively small question for such a huge topic. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think probably the best way, is if I just focus on one one single aspect. I'll focus on the drought. Drought, most farms will be aware of, of, of the weather, uh, the, the forecasts we're getting with climate change that will have increased occasions of drought and droughts will last for longer. Um, we've, yeah, we've already experienced that in the forestry where we, we plant in the winter and then the, the early spring when the trees are, are just developing, getting their roots down into the soil, they're most vulnerable. If we plan for drought, we we can have species that are naturally more drought tolerant. Um, we would turn quite normally to the pines, Scots pine, but there are others available. When you're creating woodland, you have the freedom of choice to use species. You can pick the ones that you know will be well suited to your soils today and well into the future. But even then, with a single species, there's a huge native range to Scots pine. It grows from the tip of Scotland down to the Mediterranean. Within that, you have genetic differences to those trees that will make them tolerant to long, hot, dry spells. They're the ones from the Mediterranean. The Scottish Scots pine are very tolerant to frosts and long, sustained, cold winters. And if you plant them in the wrong place, then you're doing more sort of harm than good. But if you actively select ones that, that will be more helpful in the, in the the climate change that is to come, then you are setting yourself up for success rather than failure. And, and what that really means is that we need to look further south for our planting stock. We're kind of in a situation, I'm from the south of England, that where we go to a nursery and we get planting material, we have to ask where that seed orchard, where the genetic origin is. And very often it's from the Midlands where quite a lot of our seed orchards are. So we're actually bringing genetic material from the north down to the south which is is not good we either use local stock which is great or we should look to the south which means bringing stuff over from france i'd add into that um don't get hung up on native and um, only buy from plant healthy certified nurseries and suppliers plant healthy is a, a kite mark for the biosecurity credentials of that organizations and they're not difficult to find. Most of the tree nurseries in this country now are plant healthy certified because John and his colleagues have insisted that that's the case for any grant that they put out has to have stock from those. But you might be tempted or know somebody locally and get stock, but be careful because that might be a biosecurity risk to what you're doing. Just to ask you, with the mills and some of these less common species, the, the emerging forest species as we refer to them, what experience do you have of, of taking, say, a, a Lawson cypress or a, or a coast redwood to the sawmills? Are they accepting of these of these unusual species? There's a temporal issue here. So you can't second guess what people want in 60 years time. That's really hard to do. We've been bitten by that one in the past. But actually, um, what's let's take collectively the redwoods. So your cedars, your Lawson, your cypresses um, and and things like redwood giant redwoods and sequoia and wellingtonia 
and they actually are were unfairly not wanted by sawmills 10 20 years ago so there's been a change now as it's re- as as it's realized that it's not just all about oak and ash and beach because some of those markets are quite variable and actually some of those timbers you mentioned are very very good and quite durable and good for cladding we import western red cedar and cedar from canada to use and we grow loads of it and and the mills be happy for it there are some that aren't quite so good um western hemlock is is harder to sell perhaps into the market but there is a market for it scale is an issue and we might come on to working with your neighbors in order to create scale because you know always think of a 26 ton articulated lorry full of stuff that's economic it's no different to taking grain away from a silo or delivering potatoes halfway across east anglia you need a lorry to make it economic it's no different with timber with working with neighbors and and pulling together perhaps small woodlands pulling together what's the opportunity value there well it's difficult it's not something that we naturally do as human beings it's not something we naturally do as landowners in this country so i would urge anyone who's interested in doing that is talk to your neighbors as you already do about other things i'll I'll go into another area so i'm not going to that's another subject on itself but because there aren't unlike some other countries um america france the scandinavian countries where naturally agglomerations of landowners work together both nationally and locally and regionally into hubs i'd love it we would love that to happen do it if you can if you're part of another hub for another part of your farming activity you've got the doors wide open you've got the contact list you've got the logistics set up for perhaps something else maybe you buy fuel together maybe you sell sugar beet together maybe you do something else i don't know what it is but there's no reason why you shouldn't work together on the forestry side as well. Like that's a very exciting area, actually, yeah, and one that's hugely uh, underdone here. What about the risk of not doing anything? So all of these are managed farm woodlands out there. If we don't improve the state of them, what situation will we leave the next generation in? Oh, well, we mentioned we've mentioned guilt. We have we mentioned duty. Um, I like to think back in this scenario and say, think about who made the effort to create that woodland in the first place. Most of the woodlands you'll see out of your window as you drive around or you look across the landscape are man-made. They're probably a lot less than they were 100, 200, 300 years ago. They're arguably remnants of, a, of, a, of an industrial landscape. I mean, you, you will, in, in woodlands, you'll see lime kilns and charcoal pits and things that have been part of the historic. They're worth, they are part of a working tradition. And I think if we sit on them now when the planet needs timber more than ever before as a renewable resource and it needs to sequester carbon more than it ever does so we don't heat up to 1.3 or even hotter, which really is going to be catastrophic. It is about doing something now and using as much material as possible because otherwise, looking forward to answer your question, there'll be an element of looking back saying, what were people doing? You know, there was a moment in time you couldn't escape. Nobody could have put their head in the sand on what was required. And yet those assets weren't weren't looked after as, as much as they, or I've got a horrible word, let's call them sweated. I'm going to say it. Those assets weren't <laughs> sweated as much as they could have been. And they're there already. You know, it's like having a, building a new car from scratch, importing all the bits and making a car or having one where you just have to change the oil. All you have to do is the woodland's there, just go and change the oil. And actually, by the way, you'll make some money. And I, I'll come on to, if I can segue a little bit into that, because I realise there's a barrier here, which is, well, actually, how much is this stuff worth? And so we're, we're working with Forest Research, an arm of the Forestry Commission, on uh, hardwood price size data, price and size data, size related to price and species, tabulated price size curves. And that's because 
John's organisation and our organisations realise that across, say, hardwoods in particular, it's quite hard for a landowner and a farmer to know, well, what is my oak worth? What is six oak worth? What is my ash at the moment, which is mm. disease? What is beech worth? We did this a few years ago in Grown in Britain, but we're doing a much more sophisticated approach to this starting this year and rolling on year by year, publicising data from the market, from actual sales, along with expert opinion and related to different sizes. So that's really exciting. And I think that's going to support a lot of the assertions and uh, needs that we're the three of us are identifying on this on this podcast. Yeah, it's a really interesting point because generally within the market, my understanding is, is that conifers are a much more standardised product. It, it's yeah. easier to understand what the value is, whether you have good timber. Hardwoods are much more specialist. It's it's very easy for, for a woodland owner to, to offer their product for sale and someone's going, oh, it's all just firewood. And that's a sort of generally a lower value product rather than they hear stories of, of people selling individual trees for veneer for thousands of pounds. And it's, there's a little bit of knowledge that, that is needed to understand what, what you have, whether it's a good soil quality. Um, but there is, yeah, some basic sort of forestry knowledge isn't isn't that hard to come by there's there's forestry organizations the rfs the royal forestry society that just does local sort of site visits and you can talk to people talk to other woodland owners but as we were saying it's farmers are very sort of isolated uh insulated from foresters it's, it's just a completely different industry but just get out there and talk to people about you know is this a good quality tree is it not is it just firewood is, is that what i've been told and and the more information we have the better the decisions that landowners can make. So yeah, it's absolutely fantastic news to hear that that, that next iteration of, the, of those price curves. So people can just, just look. So we've published the softwood prices for quite a long time. Um, yeah. And just people can sort of see when they go up and down, generally related to demand for construction. If the industry uh, for the construction industry is healthy, timber prices go up. If there's a, a crash in house prices, timber prices come down. And that's sort of quite an established link. So yeah, fantastic to, to hear that. I'm going to pick up on something you said, which is, is I imagine, is stuck in, in listeners' mind, about sweating the assets. Um, just to pull a few threads together, we know that nearly half of our woodlands are unmanaged. That means that our, that 20% of our timber supply that is being used, we're having to work those woodlands very hard to produce that 20% of timber. If we could manage all our woodlands we can bring down that intensity of management of, of some of those big conifer plantations that, that people do get a little bit sort of sniffy about, those, you know, those, those sort of monoculture sitka stands. And, and we can just sort of spread that out across the countryside in the same way that, you know, sort of, yeah, farmers wouldn't try to get your whole business's crop from just one field and have another one sort of set aside and, and just, just left to go. So it, it's... There's this real point there. And I think... Yeah, it's really good, John. And your target, the, your, your, the government's target, is 16.5% in woodland cover. And we're at about 12 13% how you want to count. Now, you're not going to get that by monocultural spruce going across half of Hampshire, are you, or somewhere? So it has to be those mixed woodlands producing all those different different uh, assets, such as cleaning the water, cleaning the air, providing biodiversity, providing wonderful timber, sequestering carbon, so, yeah, I think, I, I mean, there are, there is a place for plantations, but even those need to have sort of up to, say, 30% mixed around them to be sustainable and resilient. So you're right. And we won't get to those targets if we don't think about multipurpose woodlands, that's for sure. Mm, definitely. Yeah, just sort of thinking that 
looking back from 20 or 30 years in the future at, at the decisions we make today, we can definitely make some no regret, low regret decisions and, and actions. And putting Woodland into management is one of those because we know that managed Woodland is better, is more biodiverse, is more resilient. So making a decision not to manage the woodland, I think, will come to be seen as a sort of a missed opportunity or as, as a regret, whereas someone who starts to just understand their wood and gently manage it and, and, and just to think about what you've got and how, how best to, to, to use that and to protect it, we'll, yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll sit there in 20 years' time and think, yeah, that was, that was a great decision. Um, diversifies the farm business as well if you're making a little bit of a little bit of income from from the timber or even just saving on your heating costs because you're burning a bit of your own firewood yeah, yeah. no regrets. I, I like that 20 years if i made just one wrap-up point for me ben is that it may feel like you're the first to go into that woodland because you've been there for 20 years and it seemed like oh it's a bit scary or it's a bit untouched or what do i do but actually 20 years ago was probably the sense the last sensible time somebody went in and did something it's not it's not on a small woodland it doesn't have yeah. to be every year or every six months on larger woodlands you might work a section of it much like a mosaic of of fields but actually it could be 20 years and you do something you thin it you replace it you get the regeneration going into those gaps and then in 20 years somebody comes and does another part of that woodland you know or another wood on on the farm or another wood on the estate that seems that is very normal you know, it doesn't have to be everything all of the time and it doesn't have to look like it's been managed recently for it to be in management. There's something around realising the timescales of woodland management. They're on your side. And so, again, I encourage everybody, if you've got woodland, just go and look at it again and look up. And if you look up and the crowns are like this, you can't see the sky through the crown, then it's probably undermanaged. That's the simplest way you can look at it. I think that might be the mic drop moment to leave it on um wow hugely diverse discussion thank you so much to you both i know there's um it's a lot for listeners to ponder on that and, and we've got plenty more in this series to go through uh that is all we have time for but a huge thank you um to our first guest in this mini series our guest today google driver and a big thank you also from me to my co-host john Burgess. john what have we got coming up in the next episode yeah, we are having a farm woodland question time and we'll be putting listeners' questions about farm woodland management to Simon James, who is a Woodland Management and Policy Senior Manager at the Small Woodlands Association. And we'll also have James Ramsgate-Gardner, who is the Agroforestry Advisor, one of my colleagues in the Forestry Commission. Uh, and we'll be answering those questions, hopefully giving you some really good quality advice. We'll also have your, your great expertise, of course, as well. <laughs> Uh, in the meantime please do share this episode amongst your farming network um, and we hope that you'll get uh, this uh, the aim of this really is to get us all thinking more about trees on farms um, any further information can be found in the show notes and there's some links in that as well uh, until next time though i'm ben eagle my co-host is john burgess and this has been a meet the farmers mini series on trees on farms produced in association with the Forest Commission. We will see you next time.